So uh, I'm going to take a couple moments and uh, tell you a few really cool things. But first, I want to tell you about this wonderful little uh, thing in my hand that you can't see, but I want to describe it to you. It is a, a cross stitch that my wife did for me uh, years ago. Um, on the, it's the date June 11, 1989. That was the day that I proposed to her. So she put on this little cross stitch, I will love you forever, a little picture of a ring and the date. Isn't that an amazing gift? She gave this to me a few weeks after we got engaged. Now, here's the thing. Um, we hadn't known each other but just a year or so, year and a couple months, and I wasn't as mature then as I am now. And um, she called me one day before she gave me this, and she said, I've got a wonderful gift and a surprise for you. That sounds awesome. She's like, I can't wait to give it to you. And I'm like, that sounds cool. And then I hung up the phone, and a few days passed, she called me again. When I see you, I've got a great gift for you. And I thought, that sounds awesome. She's like, I put a lot of thought into this. And I thought, that sounds cool. And then we talked for a few minutes, and we hung up. And a few days later, she called, and she said, I know, just like tomorrow, we're going to see each other. And I've got a great gift for you. And I thought, that sounds awesome. And then she said, you're really going to like it. And I thought, that sounds cool. And then we hung up and I drove up to Ohio to see my bride-to-be. And in my mind, friends, I'm going to tell you, I don't know what I thought. <laughs> it wasn't this. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. I, again, I don't know what I thought, but it was huge, it was big, it was expensive, it was shiny, it probably had a motor and a remote control. I don't know what I thought, but it wasn't this. And so when she gave me this, honest to God, it's one of the most embarrassing moments in my entire relationship with my wife. I had this look of like, really? It's cross-stitch. Isn't that horrible? It's just horrible. Now, now here, here's the thing, today... We're going to talk about, in the message uh, called Socks and Underwear, expectations. Because sometimes you can get a gift, and uh, you're just not in the place fully to receive it, uh, to understand it, to value it to the degree that the person who gave it to you wants you to value it. And that, that, that's where I was. Now, I mean, th this, there's, I would take nothing. Like, this is so precious to me, Right? There's nothing you could give me for this. It's one of the most important things. Uh, it's, a, it's a memento of our life together. It's such a special thing. But at that time in my life, I just wasn't in a place to understand how valuable and how special it really, really, really was. If you have your Bible, you can go to Ephesians. Ephesians, the book that we've been studying for weeks now. We're just kind of taking a section at a time in order. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And while you're getting ready uh, to like dive into your message notes with me, you got those when you came in the front door. They look like this on the back of the notes and the scriptures we're going to use, right? So there's your message notes. You can follow along here. I want to tell you about an amazing gift that our church gives every year, all right? We won't take a lot of time here to talk about this, but every year our church gets together and we give an amazing gift to the opportunity the Lord gives us to serve people around the world. We give a gift here, near, and far. That's the language we use. Um, what we do is we make any, a specific investment. We give a gift on Christmas Day to the Lord, to the things he cares about. 
Uh, it was interesting. One of the, the kids in the video you saw earlier, he said, I think it's my birthday. That's what happens on Christmas. And there's no reason he thinks, I mean, there's no surprise why he thinks that because at, on Christmas Day, we give gifts to everybody else sometimes except to the guy whose birthday it really is. So years ago, our church started giving a Christmas gift. We call it My Christmas Gift. And this year, it's My Christmas Gift 2019. And we bless things that are close to the heart of God here, near, and far. As I, I had last week, if you were here, I showed you four pictures. I want to show them to you again that just illustrate some of the things we're doing with the My Christmas Gift. This is our work in India. We call it 4C India. That's a church building on the right. On the left, in the very background, is a girls' orphanage home. Uh, most of the structures on this property were built, and certainly all of them were improved by this church over the last 10 years. Um, some 40 girls, some 15 guys, some 15 pastors who serve in the regions around here are benefited because of the campus that we have developed uh, in North Kerala, India. And so the food that the girls eat and the boys eat, uh, the lodging that they have, the education is paid for by people who sponsor uh, these kids in our, in the, from within our congregation. And then we make a major investment of, of money, of capital and goodwill towards them to develop this campus that's a lighthouse in a dark region. For 10 years or so, we've been doing this. And this year, our Christmas gift offering will go to help girls there as well. On the next picture, what you're going to see is this is a picture of our North Warehouse in this building, just this side of the building, a few years ago when just before my Christmas gift offering, I stood up and said, let's expand the ministry space to serve people that you just saw on our stage. And so we bought carpet, we bought drywall, we bought wood and studs and hired electricians to come in and do some incredible work for us. And that's what it looked like a few years ago. If you walk in that space now, you can't even see uh, that this is that same space because you have done so much over the years. That's one of the things we did right here in our own building. India is something we did far away. Go ahead and show them the next picture if you don't mind. On the foreground of that picture is the uh, pastors of the church in Cuba that our church partnered with starting a couple years ago. Pastor Kevin and Tani Job in our church um, serve from the U.S. to send resources, people, energy, love, and ministry opportunity to people in Cuba. And they primarily partner with Pastor Jose and Yami right there in the front. And in the background of that picture are all these young pastors, many of whom are sponsored by people right here in this church who over the next 20, 30 years of their life are going to do incredible ministry in Cuba. That's one more way that over the years our Christmas gift has gone literally far away from here to make an impact. And this year it's going to do the same thing. And then I showed you one of the most exciting things that's happening, if you'll show the next picture, in the life of our church is um, we're going to provide for people in our church who are on a tight budget. So the elderly, those who are in a unique situation where their finances are restrained, um, single moms, that's close to my heart. We love families, and I have a dear, dear um, spot in my heart for a single mom. My grandfather died when my father was very young, and he was raised with his 12 siblings by a single mom. So that's just very near and dear to my heart. And we're going to help them by giving them basic car maintenance. Now, very, very basic. Things like oil changes and air filters and lights, that kind of thing. And so we're actually setting up a lift just like this in our warehouse, and uh, about the first quarter of 2020, we're going to offer these free services to people within our own church family. By the time we get to the second quarter of 2020 next year, we'll develop the system, and then people in our church here, all of you can recommend people who fit these uh, criteria, you know, they're in, about a bit of, in a bit of a bind, or this would be a major gift for them, and we'll help them, because the truth is, is if you live in the suburbs, and your transportation takes a hit, it affects 
everything in life, schooling, work, I mean, just all the stuff, and we're going to serve our family here in our church and the next year out really, really well, and this is just one of the ways that we serve here within our own building. Now, all of these things happen, just so you know, all of these gifts happen, not because we have it in the budget to do it. Our budget is a separate pile of money that gets set aside by your normal giving that pays for all the ministry in this church that keeps us generally going. But for the last, well, 15 years as a church, everything we've done above and beyond our budget happened because we stood in front of a a group of people like you and we said, here's an opportunity for us. We have an opportunity to invest in India. Do you want to do it with us? We have an opportunity to invest in Cuba. Do you want to do it with us? Uh, we, ha- we have an opportunity to uh, do some advancements within our own building to serve people like our kids. Do you want to do it with us? Now we have an opportunity to serve people like single moms and elderly people on a fixed income. Do you want to do it with us? And consistently, this church has said, yes, we want to do it with you. So we don't have money over here to do that. But every year, our church comes together and says, above and beyond our budget, we want to do some really cool things here, near, and far. And if you want to be a part of that, it's a very simple process by which you do that. Between now and actually the end of January, because some people need to wait till the new year has transitioned, you simply take an offering envelope like this, you put a gift in it, and you write Christmas on the check, or you write it on the offering envelope, or you go online and you select the My Christmas Gift Way, and that money, all of it goes to support opportunities like this. And the fundamental question for you is, you don't have to do this, by the way. This is an opportunity. If you don't do it, uh, and this church decides we don't want to be a part of those things, none of the things I talked about happen. Uh, Like, we're not just going to make up for it in the budget. That money does not exist anywhere. And 100% of the money you give to my Christmas gift goes to these kinds of things to help us get some incredible ministry done. And so I just have a very simple question for you. I'd like you to think about it uh, between now and the end of our service and the end of the year and the end of January is, do you want to do these kinds of things together? Because together we can do some pretty incredible things. We'll continue to help in India. We'll help in Cuba. We're reaching into Africa this year. I'm going to tell you about that next week. It's really exciting. We're making a significant development into future kingdom work. I'm going to tell you about that next week. You're going to love that. We're going to do this lift thing and help people on a fixed income. The question for you is, is do you want to do it with us? And I hope you do. And you can give your gift anytime above and beyond your normal giving. And if you have to decide, am I going to give to the budget or am I going to give to this Christmas gift? Bottom line is you do what you want. It's your money. We don't make you do anything and we don't do guilt. But I do want to say with absolute clarity, I am never ashamed. I don't do this often, but I am never ashamed to stand on this stage during Christmas time and say, make sure you give a gift to the one whose birthday it is. So in our family, we take the most expensive gift we buy, and we give that equal amount of money to the Lord's work. You do it however you want. We get our family involved, and it's a pretty exciting time for us. So right now, right back to this little uh, cross-stitch thing, all right? I have one final picture I want to show you. This is uh, the weekend right after we got engaged. Look at that handsome couple right here. Isn't that sweet? Look at that big hair, by the way. On me, not Jill. Look at that big hair. There we are. I'm, uh, I'm like 20 years old, 19 actually at that time. And uh, Jill's 20. I married an older woman. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, there we are sitting on the front steps. I was actually in inner city Chicago um, doing a ministry assignment that entire year. And we're sitting on the front steps of a, of a building 
um, that I was staying in, and uh, Jill came up. We took this picture. We sent it to her local paper as an announcement of our um, upcoming uh, wedding, and uh, what, what an amazing time. Now, when we were going through that season of life and we're thinking, I had some pretty incredible people in my life, uh, some godly men, and uh, I started talking to them about the fact that I was dating this remarkable lady, and I didn't think I could ever find anybody better. And they're like, well, that's not really how you think about marriage, Ben, that you don't start by what you can get out of it. That's a great conversation, because that's where I was, like, she's pretty, and she's smart, and she's pretty. Did I say she's pretty? And, uh, and they're like, look, I, you're very focused on you right now. I'm not sure that's the best way to begin a marriage. And they took me to some Bible passages, one of them we're actually looking at today. It's a Bible passage that's fundamental to marriage. And they helped me understand a passage that I had never really understood before. I think I hadn't understood it because I really didn't have a need to. I mean, I was young. I wasn't thinking about getting married. In fact, this, this woman kind of swept me up off my feet and kind of started this process uh, before I was even contemplating that I was ready. In my mind, it'd be a few years uh, later. And so we got together and we looked at this passage. And one of my fundamental mentors. Many of you have, have met him. His name is Dr. Bill Balzano. Um, he attended this church, has spoken from this stage years ago. Uh, he was a professor of mine at the time, and he and I sat, and we actually worked through this passage together uh, years ago. It's a passage about marriage, and sometimes because of some of the language in it, when people read it and they don't understand what's going on, it's a little off-putting to a handful of people. And my, my hope today is, is that this passage could be recovered. It could be recaptured in your heart. And if it's the first time you've worked through it, my hope is that it'll speak so much life to you. And if it's the time of revisiting it, my hope is that it'll spark in you something because the truth is, is that marriage impacts every one of us. Even if you're single in this room, um, the likelihood that you're the result of a man and woman coming together and many of them in marriage is pretty high. I mean, it's just pretty high. And so you've seen marriages up close that have gone well. You've seen them not go well. You probably have a friend right now whose marriage is not going great. Right? That's just a normal reality. And yet God, who was the designer and the architect of marriage, has a lot to say about it. And I'm, I'm going to suggest something. This is very subjective. You are certainly welcome to disagree with me. But I believe this, all right? Most of the marriages that the people in this room, all of us will look at and go, now there's a good marriage. That's the kind of marriage that when I got married, I had hoped to have. Most of the marriages that we would all agree upon is a really good, healthy, vibrant, life-giving marriage. Most of them, whether they know it or not, have some of the ingredients of this passage at work in their marriage. I'm reminded as we start into this passage of a, one of the greatest movies of all time. I showed you a picture from the late 1980s, and there was a movie from the same time frame that in my mind is one of the greatest movies ever. I've referenced it a handful of times in a message over the last decade or so on this stage. Some of you will remember it. If I say to you, Daniel LaRusso, LaRusso, do you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about the Karate Kid. This isn't a phenomenal movie. And Daniel LaRusso, this kind of down and out kid, rough go of it, gets mentored by an older Asian guy who is an incredible wizard with karate, right? 
He's incredible at it. And so he takes Daniel in to kind of help him get a, a fresh start. You, some of you know the story, right? And so, by the way, a few years ago, I watched that movie again with my kid. It, it, with my kids, it's not quite as fascinating to me now as it was then. But back in the day, I'll never forget it when Mr. Miyagi takes Daniel in and he teaches him to paint the fence. Remember? Paint the fence. And to wax on, wax off the cars. And so for like a week, he's painting the fence. And the next week, he's wax on and wax off. And he's very frustrated because he's supposed to be learning karate. But all Mr. Miyagi has him doing is working on his house and waxing his cars. And he's very frustrated. And so in a display of youthful ignorance, he says to Mr. Miyagi, that's it, I quit, I'm out. You're supposed to be teaching me karate? I don't know anything. And Mr. Miyagi says, show me. You know, wax on, wax off. And when he does it, Mr. Miyagi does this thing with his voice. Ha! I've copied it many times. I never quite get it right. All right. And very quickly, you learn in about 30 seconds. Of course, the intuitive people in the room already knew it. But you learn in about 30 seconds that the paint the fence and the wax on and the wax off is all just learning the motions that's going to make Daniel successful in karate. The problem was is he didn't know that he was learning karate. He didn't have to know because his, his mentor knew it. Daniel just had to go along with the process. He had a lot of learning to do in the laboratories of life. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is going to show followers of Jesus. So let me just make a first point if you're taking notes. <clears throat> this passage is for followers of Jesus. Other people can benefit from it. But it is not to the world at large. Again, anybody from any religion, any faith, no religion at all, can read this passage and maybe get some stuff out of it. Most people who read this passage with, without a Christian faith stumble over a few of the words. This passage is written to Christians, and it serves a bit as an introduction to the laboratories of life. The end of chapter 5 we're going to look at today, beginning of chapter 6 we'll get to uh, next week when we end this series. There are three major areas of life introduced that are sort of laboratories teaching followers of Jesus what life with God is like. And... When these laboratories, these experiments, these practices of what life with God is like is discussed, there's also given to the followers of Jesus incredible insight into these three major areas of life that everybody in the room has been touched by. The three areas today, we're going to talk about marriage, and then family, and work, like working for a living, right? Marriage, family, and work. This has touched everybody in the room in some way, directly or indirectly. And this passage, the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6 of Ephesians, deals with these three areas of life, and it makes very similar points. Today we're going to focus just on, on marriage. And they begin with an incredible phrase that is just as offensive today as it was 2,000 years ago when it was written. When Paul writes these words 2,000 years ago, that begin our passage, nobody liked them then. Nobody liked them 500 years ago. Nobody liked them 50 years ago. And very few people today like them at all. We're not that unique. 
The times were not so different that people 2,000 years ago read the passage we're looking at today and went, oh, that's awesome. Let's all do this. Doesn't it sound like a great idea? No, that's not at all what happened. They all went, this sounds very difficult. This doesn't sound warm and inviting. This doesn't sound fun at all. That's what the response was 2,000 years ago. And it's the same response most people give today. And yet, the truth is, friends, whether we see it or not, there's some incredibly powerful stuff in this passage that if we embrace it, bring it close, we'll discover the heart of God a little bit more. We'll get real insight into the Christian life and our own discipleship. And fundamentally, it will have a profound positive impact on our marriage. And so today, I want you to listen, married or not, because you know people that are married. And sometimes your friends will open up to you and they'll talk to you because when you're married, it's one of the most important things in your life. It's all-consuming, and it should be. I want you to have some tools ready to talk. And if you're talking to a disciple, I want you to be able to pull them back to what God's heart was in the beginning with the whole thing. So beginning with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, here's what our Bible says on your message notes, on your phone, in your hardback Bible around the screen. Here we go. It says... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is how the passage begins. It begins with an important quality in the Christian life. It's a quality that Jesus himself exhibited over and over again. This is Christmas time. And this quality of submission in Jesus is essential to the Christmas story. There is no advent without submission. When Paul, in another one of his letters, was writing, he said, here's what was going on. Jesus is enjoying heaven and all the benefits that comes with being the ruler of the universe, but he decided to step out of heaven and step onto earth and become one of us. Some of the language he uses is similar to language here as he submits himself to the will of the Father and becomes one of us. He, here's the word, he humbles himself and he becomes in the flesh. It's the language of submission. There is no Christmas at all without this principle in our Christian faith. When Paul wants to talk about the three primary dynamics of life that are going to impact all of us for the rest of our lives and our kids and our grandkids and our neighbors and our boyfriends and our girlfriends, when he wants to talk about marriage, family, and work, he begins all of that discussion with this simple sentence. Simple to understand, incredibly complex and powerful in its application. And one more time, it says, submit to one another out of reverence, for Christ. That's how he begins. And now for the next couple hundred words, he's going to talk about how this principle looks in marriage. He's going to talk about how this principle looks in families. He's going to talk about how this principle looks in work environments. And each time he does it, the original readers of this letter went, yeah, I know you're on to something, but there was never a day in my life I liked submitting to anybody or anything. Ever, period, no one never, ever loved it. And yet without it, our Christian faith doesn't occur. So he begins by saying, submit to one another, and then he gives us the big why behind it, out of reverence for Christ, in awe of Christ, in service to Christ, in your family, in your work, 
in your marriage, the submission principle is ultimately for disciples about Jesus. And it's ultimately applicable broadly to everybody who's a disciple, male, female, moms and dads, children and family. So in marriage, it's male and female. In in families, it's parents, kids, and in work environments, it's supervisors and those they supervise. There's the, the dichotomies that exist. Husband, wife, parents, kids, supervisors, and supervised. And all of them, in their own ways, Paul's going to tease it out, have to remember as disciples of Jesus that the whole thing works when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, some of you have been around church long enough. You know the inherent tension in these conversations. Whenever I get asked to do a wedding and it's believers, it's not unusual to have a conversation where they say to me, like, hey, Ben, I know you said that at some point in the service, if you're going to do the wedding, you, you get to talk with freedom about whatever you want to talk about. Can you give us a little insight what you might say? And I've done I'm going to make up a number, a couple hundred weddings. Probably not quite, but probably not far off either, all right? So over 30 years of ministry. And what they're usually trying to say is, is like, uh, A, are you going to out anything that we shared privately when we were in premarital counseling? The answer is no. I'm never going to share any of that stuff. That would be silly. It would be fun, but it would be silly. (laughs) We're not going to do that. I mean, you know, if I'm going to go down in a blaze of glory, maybe one day, all right? But, But that's not today. We're not going to do any of that. The other thing they want to know is like, what passage? Like, you're going to do that neat passage from 1 Corinthians 13? You know, love is patient, love is kind. And by the way, nine times out of ten, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But what they really want to know is like, what are you going to do with all that Bible stuff with marriage with the S word? And they don't mean sex. They mean submission. What are you going to do with that? Well, we're going to do it right now together for the next ten minutes or so, all right? So here's what I want to do. I want to talk with you about, on the bottom of your message notes as we work through the passage, the first blank, is that without God, you may have a good marriage, but you'll never have a godly marriage. Now, if you're a disciple, I hope you have a good marriage. I do. A good marriage is so much more enjoyable. I joked last week, some people didn't think it was funny, that in a week and a half or so, Jill and I will have been married 30 years, which is pretty amazing. I can't believe uh, she stuck with me that long. Just to be honest, sometimes I'm amazed. And then I said, jokingly, but totally serious, um, it's the best 27 years of my life. And people were like, like somehow I dissed my wife or something. I don't know. You know, diss, that's from the 1980s. That's when you're like disrespected. So this, is, this whole service is brought to you by the 1980s, by the way. So now, the, the, the truth is, is that a good marriage is not good all the time. A good marriage is good because when there was rough times, you didn't give up. Some good things happened. Sometimes you grew. Uh, sometimes you just worked through pain together in a way that made you stronger, even if things weren't fully resolved. Sometimes you still have battle scars, but they heal. That's good marriage. I pray everybody in the room has a good marriage, is around good marriages, have parents who have a good marriage. And the truth is, I know that's not true, though. I know that's not true for a lot of us. Or even if you have a good marriage, you might be in a season where it's not awesome. But there's something fundamentally better for a disciple than a good marriage. That's a godly marriage. Now, 
Uh, my premise is, is that a godly marriage is very often a good marriage. In fact, I would suggest to you that without godliness in the people who are married, it's very difficult to have a godly marriage. And if you don't have a godly marriage, it's very difficult to sustain a good marriage. I mean, the odds stacking against you having a good marriage is very high. The odds stacked against your grandchildren having a good marriage is very high. I mean, it's a difficult year to get married, honestly. And it has been for the last 30 or 40 or so. In fact, I would suggest it's probably been difficult to be married for the last however long humans have been getting married. That's just the truth because you have two independent people with different thoughts, experiences, wills, and backgrounds trying to come together and do life together. It's fraught with opportunities for conflict and challenge, of course. So Paul... In the New Testament, Jesus in the New Testament and other writers regularly come to this dynamic called marriage to explore what it means to provide some advice, but ultimately to encourage disciples to follow God as they do marriage. Now, this is very different than what you typically get in marriage advice from your friends when you're talking about the challenges you're having. Very rarely do friends get together and say, let me tell you how to deal with your marriage issues. Pursue God more. It's very rarely what happens. It's not what I hear when people come and they say to me, Pastor, we're struggling in our marriage. Would you meet with us? Yeah, I'll meet with you a couple of times. Sure, I, I, yeah, I actually like to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time counseling. If we need to do that, we'll get you some professional help. Our church will pay for it. By the way, we pay for that with the Christmas offering, so thank you for that. And so we'll do that. But I'll be glad to meet you. And very rarely when I'm meeting with people do they say, here's what my friends have said, and we just want to get your perspective. What they've said is, is in this current marriage challenge, what we need is more of God. Pastor, would you help us get more of God in our marriage right now? I've never one time in 32 ministries had an experience like that. Usually here's, what it, here's how it goes. Pastor, we're having marriage problems, and my friends say that I shouldn't put up with his crap anymore. <laughs> and the problem is that sometimes I'm sitting there going, well, he does have some of that in his life, he, he, uh, and we do need to deal with that. But very rarely do friends encourage people to run after God in the middle of their challenges. And that's what makes preaching, preaching this passage more difficult, is that when it comes to marriage, we rarely think that at the core, it's an issue of godliness. We typically think there's other stuff going on, but the Apostle Paul is going to make the point that at the core of every marriage challenge is a fundamental issue of what does God want to do in my life right now? And here's the bigger issue is, can I submit to the will of my heavenly father as I think about where I am in my marriage right now? It's a very different kind of discussion than how do I get out of this tension. It's a very different discussion than how do I put up one more time with that failure. It's a very different discussion of, one more layer of stress has been put upon us. What do we do? This is an invitation for the next few minutes to pursue God in the middle of stuff. So I have three big things that make a godly marriage, which I think it's the path to a good, in fact, a great marriage. Number one, a great marriage takes two great submitters, two great submitters, not one. In fact, the challenge with the marriage is it only takes one person to destroy it. That's the problem, but it takes two people to make it good. This is difficult. Let me, let me tell you something, ladies. I might free you a little bit. You can never be a great enough wife that your husband will automatically become a great and godly man. It can't happen. Now, I, I do think, ladies, 
to, to help you because behind, you know, the same behind every, you know, good man, great man, visibly successful man is a, is a you know, an awesome lady. Of, of course, that's true. But the truth is, is, ladies, you can never be awesome enough to make your man, just because you're awesome, want to be the godly person the Lord has called him to be. And, and, and men, you'll never be perfect enough, godly enough, a good enough leader, great enough, so that your wife automatically steps into her perfect role as a wife simply as a function of your behavior. No, it takes two disciples pressing into their own growth for a Christian marriage to be godly. And if either one isn't doing that for an extended period of time, I'm going to make a prediction, and I'm not wrong. Troubles come into your Christian marriage. Now, if it's not a Christian marriage, I don't know what to say about that. The problem is, is that as a Christian, I see a lot of marriages that don't seem to be wanting to be great Christian marriages, and I think I can see, and it's none of my business really, challenges that they're headed towards that don't seem to be a challenge. In fact, they seem to be embracing the very things that I think are going to bring challenges. They seem to be thinking, looks like it's pretty awesome to be in this place. I'm going to give you just a few of them, and in Christian terms, in the original Greek, uh, there's a word called meddling. That's what I'm about to do. All right, here we go not a Greek word, it's an English word. When I see, for instance, two marriage, uh, two two financial accounts in a marriage, she has hers, he has his. Now, I'm not talking about she has some discretionary and he, uh, that's fine. But two fundamental things because we don't bring things together because at the end of the day, money is power and power is control. And in this marriage, what really matters is I get mine even as you get yours. And as long as I get mine, I don't mind if you get yours. I know something about that, that that marriage might make it on some philosophical and surface level. But fundamentally, marriage is about all of life coming together and doing something better together than we can ever do alone. So it's just an indicator of what is likely to be bigger problems. When I see deep friendships of a woman with men she's not married to, and she spends a lot of time with men she's not married to. I know that seems modern and hip and cool, but fundamentally I'm telling you we're headed towards problems. You're welcome to disagree with me. I'm just giving my opinion, right? That's not what the Bible says. I can back up with Scripture, but I'd be stretching it. But fundamentally, when a man spends a lot of time and starts emotionally connecting with women he's not married to, and get some of his companionship met with women he's not married to, I know eventually there's going to be other dynamics that are likely to show up. Here's another one. That's two, right? Money, friendship. Here's a third one. When there's secret social media accounts and passwords that the spouse doesn't know about, I know what's happening, friends. I grew up in the southeast of Tennessee. I was born in Chicago, southeast Tennessee, and we, we used to have friends who had farms. And so we'd go out and play and stuff. I remember one time I was at my buddy Bo, because he's a country boy, his name's Bo. Of course it is. It's not a made-up story at all. Now I was at Bo's farm with his dad, and we're playing, and we've been in the barn, and we come out of the barn, and we left the barn door open. And his dad came by and driving by in a truck, true story, with a dog in the back, absolutely, yes, it really happened, and he stops, and he starts yelling, Bo, get out of here, you left the barn door open, that's a metaphor for life, friends, 
You have social media accounts that your spouse doesn't have access to your passwords, and you have a whole hidden self online, you're headed for trouble. You left the barn door open. That's happening all over our church, our community, in your friend group, and it's never going to produce good. Never. A great marriage, by the way, takes two great submitters. Being sub, the next blank, to the mission. That's what submission is. I'm sub to the mission. I put my will subservient to the mission of us together. I put all of my hopes and dreams subservient to us together. Being sub to the mission is what brings alignment, clarity, and power because you're walking with purpose towards a mission that's greater than yourself. And I want to make something perfectly clear to you. Your self-preservation and your happiness is a far too small a goal to dedicate your life to. I know that as Americans, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that's awesome for a country. It's horrible as a disciple. Your happiness is far too low a goal to give your life to. Marriage is not about your happiness, friends. Not if you're a disciple. Marriage is about your holiness before God and the partner there with you to help make you into the disciple that God has called you to become. I get it. We don't talk about this stuff enough. I get it. And when you do, it's like it pulls the scab off the wound. So nobody wants to talk about this stuff. Of course. But the truth is, is that when you and I, as a husband or as a wife, decide to make all of my agenda sub to the mission that God has called us to, to walk together in unity, side by side, in the life that he's called us to, then we set ourselves up to have a potentially great and godly marriage. For women... The Bible is going to tease out what some of this looks like. And for men, it's going to tease out what some of it looks like. And if you're a woman and I read it, yours sounds burdensome. And if you're a man and you think about it for just 30 seconds, yours sounds burdensome. The whole point of this next few words is it's supposed to be burdensome on both in a pretty equal measure. So here's what the Bible says. 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then teased out, here's what that sounds like. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Let me just give you a little help here. This does not say women submit to men. Christian wives, you have a husband. Submit to him is what the Bible says here. Don't be mad at me here. I'm just a reporter. Every time the Bible addresses a wife in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, the words submit, respect, honor are used when it talks about your role towards your husband. Every time, without exception. You have to figure out what you're going to do with that as a disciple. Wives, submit, to yourselves, or submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. A little interesting nuance on that Greek word everything there. It doesn't mean everything. It means pretty much whatever you want it to mean. Do you feel how awkward that would be if that were true? The word everything here means everything. Now, of course, I've got to get the caveat here. This is not an endorsement of abusive relationships. If a husband is trying to push a wife in a direction that disciples should not go, the wife is affirmed biblically to disrespect that authority and that relationship. That you always submit to the Lord's agenda, not to your husband's. And I'm not suggesting this is easy. I'm not even suggesting I know what it means in all of its implications. I'm just suggesting there it is in black and white. 
And Christian wives should make this a matter of prayer and surround themselves with women who are trying to figure this out. But I don't think it's any easier for the men. In fact, I think it's harder in some ways, maybe because I'm a man. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that doesn't sound fun. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated his own body, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So men, your whole purpose in this life is to give up and do and serve and prioritize her. This is difficult. And her priority in marriage is to prioritize you. This is difficult. I don't, I don't pretend to understand how it all looks. It's taken Jill and I, uh, honestly, a good long time to come to the core of this. But typically when we were in one of those stuck periods, one, most of the time both of us were not submitting to the mission of walking godly with each other in our marriage. So a great marriage takes two great submitters. For wives, you submit to your husband. This speaks to some type of authority. I don't think it means that you don't have an opinion. Of course not. Tony Evans, one of my favorite uh, preachers in America today, he says, this principle is an invitation for wives to duck so that God can punch husbands in the face. (laughs) That you give up your control and you submit to his leadership. There's all kinds of theories on this. There's theories that attempt to make it less than what it is. I would suggest those are false and ultimately destructive. I also don't know what it all means all the time. But this is supposed to put you on your knees, ladies, in prayerful consideration of God's call on your life and to surround yourself with women who have a pattern of respecting and honoring and submitting to their husbands as the place you go to receive counsel. And men, this is supposed to put you on your knees in humble submission to God to determine what a disciple is supposed to do and to surround yourself with men who are trying to honor, lift up, and serve their wives selflessly as Christ served the church. Do you understand how he served the church? He literally died for it. So which is harder? Dear God, I don't know. But they're both supposed to make disciples spend time on their knees searching God and surrounding themselves with other believers who share the same opinion of what godly Christian marriages are. And not going and getting counsel from all kinds of foolish people whose marriages themselves were probably failures. I'm not trying to be judgmental. This is some of the most painful passage in the scripture for me. Because my sin is all over this. In fact, that leads me to point number two. A great marriage takes two great forgivers. Two great forgivers. You're going to get a chance to practice forgiveness in marriage. You're going to be reminded how difficult forgiveness is. You're going to look at a person and think, dear God, one more time. Was that too raw? Is that okay with everybody? That's what you're going to do. And the whole point is 
That's supposed to humble your, you in light of the fact that God has forgiven you more than anything that you're going to have to forgive this person for. In marriage, there are two great submitters to the cause of Christ, to the purpose of marriage, to the mission you have together. The submission looks differently, but they're both hard. And it's going to take some incredible forgiveness. And here's the power in forgiveness. Forgiveness allows a spouse to shine. Even when imperfections, wrinkles, and stains are present, and they are always present, always present. There's a typo. You're going to have to forgive me. Did that on purpose. Not really, but I'm claiming it. Here we go. They're always present. Did you notice this passage? Verse 27, the husband is to present her to himself in, in, in a way that, God, that Christ presents the church as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle? This is what forgiveness does. It says, I see stains and wrinkles, but I don't treat you with stains and wrinkles. You get to shine even though you're imperfect. I get to, you get to feel valued in this relationship even though you're imperfect. That imperfection doesn't stop the thing. That's part of why I love this simple, beautiful, and awesome and very precious cross stitch. It's, I will love you forever. Thank God that those were words spoken before we knew what they meant. And my wife put into practice behaviors and surrounded herself with a handful of people, put herself in the word of God, stayed in the local church, regularly went on her knees so that the hope she had that she would love me forever could be possible. And she probably never knew just how much she was going to have to forgive me in the process. That's, a, that's what a marriage takes. Yeah, there's a time when forgiveness is done pragmatically, and there has to be a break. Jesus talked about that, of course. But let me tell you something. If every time we talk about a godly marriage in Christianity, you run to the extreme examples, you've either been deeply hurt, in which case, I'm so sorry, honestly, don't want to be mean, or you're deeply struggling with something else, and you're always looking for the exit clause that disciples are called to, and that's going to make you a poor, undeveloped disciple, and it's going to create problems in your walk with Jesus. So a marriage takes two great, great, uh, great submitters and two great forgivers, and a marriage takes two great investors. I'm not talking about money here, although it certainly can include that. I'm talking about the language of investment into how you build a marriage over time. Investments into marriage requires personal sacrifice, just like if you're making an investment financially. So this is typically growth as a person and growth as a disciple. Most of us don't accidentally grow. We don't accidentally grow emotionally. We don't accidentally grow intellectually. Most of the time, there's some effort put in. We don't do something so that we can grow. And the truth is that some of you, when you got married, you are at the pinnacle of your growth. And in the last five to seven years, you really haven't invested in yourself as a human being or as a disciple, truthfully. And that shows up in your marriage as immaturity. And it prevents you from being sub to the mission. So an investment in a marriage requires personal sacrifice, some focus. So I'm talking here about quality time, spending money and gifts, affirming words and physical touch, and acts of serving that you do with intentionality for your spouse so that she can be encouraged as she's trying to be subbed to the mission, so that he can be encouraged as he's trying to be subbed to the mission. 
So there's personal sacrifice. There's focus over time. This is the power of compounding interest. We have a handful of financial planners in the room, and they would tell you that one of the most powerful forces economically is compounded interest over time. A little bit of money now set aside over time, compounding upon itself annually, grows exponentially. And the more you do it, the more it grows. And if you do this in your marriage, you can receive big rewards. It's very, very difficult to do, but it's worth it. So Paul writes at the end of our passage, verse 32, this is a profound mystery. And then he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Whenever we preach on this passage, I can almost hear it in the room. But he's not very respectable. And candidly, the response to that is, and sometimes you're not very loving. So he's supposed to love you when you don't act lovingly, and you're supposed to respect him when he doesn't act respectable. I don't understand how to do all that. It's incredibly difficult. And I'm very aware of how difficult it is because sometimes, and honestly, and she doesn't mind me doing this, we talk about this stuff, sometimes she hasn't been very loving. And I know how difficult that is. But it's very difficult sometimes for me to remember that sometimes I haven't been very respectable, and she's still supposed to respect me. Do you see how this works? One is not harder than the other. It's just from our perspective, it looks so much easier for the other person. But I want to be fundamentally clear with you. All of this is ridiculous conversation if you're not serious about being a disciple. Because this doesn't work outside of Christianity. If you're serious about being a disciple, then you see in Christ one who submitted, one who forgave, one who invested. And you're inspired by what he did for you. But if he hasn't done that for you, or if it's grown cold for you, none of this matters. So the first thing that needs to happen in order to have a good marriage for Christians is godliness has to come back to the marriage. The things of God have to get priority. This is the best marriage advice I can give you. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to give you three things. I have a book I bring up here now. I'd love to read directly from my Bible and stand here because that looks so much more pastoral than what I do. But the truth is, is my eyesight has gotten so bad, I have to print in big font. So this is the passage directly here. So I hold the Bible, though, as a visual regularly that the Word of God shared in a marriage, open together, so you sit through a sermon together like you've done. Good job. It gets open in your home where individuals engage it as a disciple. This is a powerful tool to realign me, uh, realign me to say sub to the mission. When this thing stays dusty on a shelf in a marriage, too often the marriage gets dusty, just to be honest with you. So disciples, you know what I'm talking about. You need to be in the word of God, and if you're not, no wonder you're struggling as a disciple. It's not rocket science, and it's not judgmental. Here's the second thing prayer. I'm going to tell you straight up, I don't know any couples who regularly pray together that have marriage issues that are not, in, that are not surmountable. When couples pray together, insurmountable things get toppled. They climb real big obstacles together. And when prayer disappears, I have no idea what that beeping is. Anybody? When prayer disappears, it makes everything else harder. Holding my wife's hand and praying I'm going to tell you, man, how to do this because it seems so awkward. 
two steps. Hold your wife's hand and you say, how can I pray for you today? And she'll fill it in. I have a thing. I'm not feeling well. I'm tired. Um, opportunity. Kids are sick. All right, good. And then, and then you say, step two, so how can I pray for you? Step two, while you're holding her hand, you say, dear God. Ready? And then you just repeat her words. Not complicated. Dear God, be with my wife as she goes to the thing, faces the thing, deals with the thing, pursues the thing. Dear God, help her physically. She's not feeling well. And, you, and then, and then here, you ready? And then you say a very magical word. You say, amen. I'm not trying to be silly. It's not that hard. And then when you're done, can I tell you the hardest part of this is going to be? You're going to have to get over your awkwardness, guys. <clears throat> and then she's probably going to be crying. Because at least it happens regularly in our house if I, when I really do that. Because there's a tender thing that happens when she hears me go before God with her concerns and not mine. You know? Not God, as I hold my wife's hand, would you fix her? <laughs> no, and just repeat her words back to him. Scripture, prayer. And I'm going to give you one more that may not be quite as intuitive. Surround yourselves with people who have godly marriages. I'm mean, going to be very, very blunt. If you're in a small group, ladies, and you never talk about what it is to be a godly wife, get out of that small group and go find another one. Get out. You're wasting your time. I want to be totally transparent with you here. It's normal for me to hear men in our church say, at my small group, we talked about what it was to be a godly man. At my small group, we talked about how difficult it is in a man in this season in the world to press into what it is to be godly. I hear this a lot, probably because I'm a man. Let me tell you what I don't hear as frequently, and it's breaking my heart. I don't hear as many women saying, in my small group, I was challenged to respect my husband more. When I was together with my friends, we talked about the challenges of what it is to honor, love, and submit to our husbands as unto the Lord. I regularly hear men say, I'm struggling to serve my wife. Would you pray for me? I've had that twice this week. Men who I'm not in a small group with said to me, and again, I'm a man, so I get it. There may be some disconnect, but if you're looking for the exemptions here, you're going down the wrong road already. Pastor, would you pray for me? I know I'm supposed to be a better husband, and I'm struggling because of X, Y, and Z. Absolutely, because that's a prayer God wants to answer. So ladies, I want to tell you, if you don't have women in your life challenging you to be a better disciple of Jesus, and as a consequence, a better wife, get new friends. I want to be clear with you. You don't need more friends. You need godly friends. You don't need present friends. You need godly friends if you want to be a disciple. On Advent, the only reason it happened is because we have a Savior who submitted his will to the Father, who came down eager to forgive and made the greatest investment this world has ever known. And you can look at this gift of Christmas and you can discover some of the tools you need in your marriage. And I'm telling you, it may take a while, but you'll begin to see fruit in your marriage as a direct consequence of God's spirit, God's activity, godliness being present. And even though you can't make your spouse do whatever, you can become a better disciple. And when you do, you're positioning yourself to begin to align to the mission that God has called you to. I don't have time to tease it all out, but the same thing's true in a family. We'll touch on that next week. The same thing is true in your job. We'll talk on that next week, and then we'll finish up our study together. 
And this may not seem like an awesome gift at Christmas, but I'm going to tell you something. You know what your kids want more than anything else? They want mom and dad to love each other and to follow Jesus. They're just too young to be able to say it. And the last thing I want to say about all this is if you have failed here, and many of us have, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there's always second starts with Christ. Always, 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 always. Why don't you grab out your connect cards and let's take a few steps together as followers of Jesus. Next step, A says, today I want to become, or I want to make Jesus my Savior and Lord. So if that's you, check the box. He's the one who submitted. He's the one that forgives. He's the one that invests. And he invites you into a relationship with him based on the work he did on the cross and in the resurrection, not on anything you do. So if you want to be in a relationship with him, take your pen. Check next step A. Today, I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. In a moment, we're going to pray. I'm going to invite you to talk to God, do some serious business with heaven, and say, God, I can't save myself. Would you save me? Would you wash away my sins? I want you to lead my life. And then you'll put that card in the offering bucket when it comes by in a moment. And I'll send you an email this week. A member of our team will briefly reach out to you and say, Here's kind of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you have questions, we'll start conversations. We're glad to help you in these first few steps of your relationship with Christ or a renewed relationship with Christ. Next step B, I want to be baptized on February 9th. We had an amazing celebration uh, last week in second services. Three people got baptized. It was just spectacular, just absolutely beautiful. So Four Corners Church, your investment's making a difference. People's lives are being changed. And every once in a while, we get to see fruit of it. I saw it in the kids singing today. I saw it in baptism last week. If you want to be baptized, check the box. We start the conversation. Next step C says, hey, I'll give to the My Christmas Gift offering. Let me be clear with you. You do not have to. You do not have to. If you don't, we just don't do the stuff. It's okay. But if you want to do it with us, give something. We're asking everybody who calls this church home to give something, even if it's just a dollar, if that's all you have. We love 100% of the people who call Four Corners home to be a part of it. And we're shooting for $80,000. That's a lot of money. So we're uh, about halfway into the 20s now. Um, Twenty-two dollars to $24,000 has come in. I'll get the account exact tomorrow. But we're inching ever present to where we need to be. We're right on target. Christmas Eve Eve is a great time to kind of make this gift if you want or even next week. And next step D says, I'll invite two people to Christmas Eve services. So this week I walked past the, uh, the little board out there where the names are on and I just stopped and prayed. God, I don't know these names. Don't know who wrote them. But would you soften their hearts? Why don't you take your gift cards and invite some people? And the next step, E says, I'd like to talk about hosting a winter small group. Our small groups launch in January. It's our winter session. If you have interest in being a part of that and hosting, um, just check the box. Somebody reach out to you. And if it doesn't work, you just say no. And when you find out information, you say yes, all right? Why don't you set that card aside and we have some people who are coming to receive your tithe and offering as you present them to the Lord. If you're our guest, you just put your connect card in this bucket as well. That's how we collect them. Those of you who call us Four Corners Home, um, this is where you put your cards as well to take your next steps. So this week, um, we've been getting ready for company. So we finally got some lights changed in the women's bathroom. Yay. We got a heater fixed down in the adult space. And um, I'm walking around just seeing all this activity. I don't know. You know, it just, I felt that same excitement that sometimes Jill and I feel when we're about to have company show up at our house. 
and we're vacuuming and I'm making sure there's toilet paper and I wipe down the toilet seat because I got three boys, you know. Come on, come on. It's just life. It's just life. Right, but I'm doing all this because like, I want my company to know we're, we're expecting them. I don't know. I just walked around. I saw this going on. I just got excited because I can't think of a better group of people for my friends and family to come be a part of than you. I thought, what if, what if everybody in North Cincinnati had a church family like this one? Who on occasion got together and did some great things and had some meaningful conversations and worshiped God together and opened the word of God. What if everybody in North Cincinnati had a family like this? I just got excited. I wanted to tell you how much I love inviting people here because you make it a very, very special place. And one of the ways you do that is through your giving and you allow us to be ready for company. So just candidly, thank you. Let's pray about our next steps on our offering right now. Father, I pray today that you would make us all great submitters to you. For those of us that are married, make us great submitters to the mission of our marriage. Help husbands to love sacrificially, not selfishly withhold, not demand their rights, and not arrogantly promote themselves. Help them to serve their wives as Christ served the church. And Father, would you help ladies as well to do the spiritual work required to be honorable and respectful and submissive to their own husbands. God, I don't pretend to know what it all looks like. Sometimes I feel like I can barely figure out my own, and yet this is clearly what you call us all to. So I pray for marriages in our church right now, that this holiday season there would be gifts of love and forgiveness and intimacy and communication. And we wouldn't just exchange gifts. Our hearts would actually grow closer together. And Lord, would you take our offerings on our next steps right now and cause them to go very far and wide for your kingdom? And Father, I lift up every man and woman who's declaring, Jesus, save me. I trust the work you did on the cross and in the resurrection. I trust in that alone to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. We give it all to you. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.